Hey guys, uh, hopefully you can hear me okay. Let's see. Let's see if I can get this. There we go. Get this closer. Might, might look a little bit weird, but hey, hopefully you can hear me. Um, I'm sitting out here in my yard. I'm hoping that nothing is too loud to override my voice. Um, I'm in my egg chair, which I just got the other day. And I love it. Uh, with the waterfall, and I thought, why not? Why not do this um, heavy revy outside? And it has been, you know, crazy. Um, if a lot of you that watch the Urgent Education, you know that I went out of town, and then we've got Dragon Maine this week, and um, just a lot of work. And then um, uh, my car engine came the other day for my Chevelle. I mean, it's been nuts. But I've got a little bit of time, and I wanted to get into the interlude. And this is in Revelation chapter 7. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3 and kind of, you know, figure out, okay, what is happening in between the trumpets, which we've already, um, no, I'm sorry, the seals. And then you have the trumpets, and then you have the bowls. And so we've already discussed the seals to a degree. And you'll notice as we go through Revelation that you've got uh, the seven judgments or um, demonstration of God's power in, a, in an attempt to cause people to repent and accept him. Then you have um, the trumpets. Uh, so you got the seals, the trumpets, and then you have the bowls. And in between those are interludes. And these are behind the scenes showing us what is happening in the spirit realm. Okay. So here in uh, chapter 7, we have another um, interlude, and it says in verse 1, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm land and sea, wait, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. Now, if you don't remember some of what we discussed before, it is on um, Destination Church's podcast. I'm hoping, I was trying to find it. I'm hoping it's on the website. If not, um, I will get these uh, teachings on there. Um, at destinationchurchclovis.com or the hub apostolic training center.com so that you can get caught up because it has been a while since we've done this study. So like I said, these are the, this is the first of several behind the scene interludes. And we see these four winds that they're about to blow on the earth and their job, that wind is going to harm, destroy the earth and sea and the trees. So a fifth angel comes out of the east, and typically if you see an angel come out of the east, it's delivering blessing and symbolizes blessings in this uh, instance as well. And he says, don't start blowing until um, the servants of God have been sealed. And this gets to the mysterious 144,000. I'm going to give you my opinions, okay? But, uh, I'll, you know, I'm always studying uh Revelation, especially the Bible, um, as we gain understanding and as the end of the age approaches, I think more of it will become plain. I'm about to read a, a book by Michael Heiser on it as well, and he was a theologian. So I'm just letting you know, none of this is in concrete. We are interpreting as best we can 
hopefully with the Holy Spirit's help. Okay, so I just want to give you that disclaimer. Okay, so um, there's going to be an invisible protection that comes upon these servants from the harm that is about to come on the earth. We saw this with the Exodus and how the children of Israel were protected during the uh, 10 plagues. We're now seeing something very similar occurring in the book of Revelation. Now, here's the little side note on he makes his angels winds. This is um, from Hebrews 1-7. And then that is a quote of Psalm 104-4. And it says, you use the winds as your messengers. So wind direction was very important and still is in uh, forecasting weather. But especially back in those days, because you know, the weather would decide how you conduct business in life that day, especially in more agricultural, um, you know, um, times back in the, the Bible times. And, um, and so it's also interesting, and this is crazy. I remember when I learned this years ago, I was like, what? That's like one of those revelations where you're like, what on earth? Okay, so in Genesis 3, where it talks about how Adam and Eve would visit with God in the cool of the day, that literally means that his voice was on the breeze or the wind. Then in John 3, 7 through 8, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, listen to this. It's a weird passage. The whole thing's weird. But the Lord says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Um, and then, you know, Nicodemus is like, what? I mean, you know, do you enter your mom's womb, womb again and then you come back out? And so Jesus is like, here, you're a scholar and you don't even believe us and what we're saying. How are you going to understand spiritual matters? What surprised the Lord is by being a scholar, Nicodemus should have immediately tied the wind that Jesus was referring to with the wind that was in the garden pre-fall or the Lord's voice on the wind. And it shocked him that a scholar of the word did not connect the two. So basically what Jesus is saying is that we're going to go back to pre-fall state. And he was, you know, speaking in parables because that's what he did, because it was up to those whose hearts were willing to listen to be able to understand the parables um, by God's spirit. So wind is definitely something that's very important and worthy of study in the Bible. The direction of the wind can speak of judgment. It can speak of blessing, like uh, I refer to in the East uh, example of this one angel. And then the word for spirit is actually wind or breath in the original Greek. And so it's hard for our natural mind to comprehend God. And so God is spirit. So we have his spirit, his breath, his wind on the inside of us and God is supposed to interpret God and his word is supposed to be interpreted by those who are in love with him. Okay. Because if you interpret his word minus being in love with him, a lot of times you get good principles and you get, um, what's the word you can get uh, head knowledge, but not the heart transformation. Like one of the things I tell people is when you hear the word, it's an active exercise. You receive it actively understanding that the word that is being spoken, as long as it's a word, that is being spoken is a literal impartation of the essence of Jesus Christ because he's the word. So within the word is all that we need for godliness and life, right? And so when we 
receive the word actively it, and we take it by faith, it can transform us, not just give us head knowledge. Because I fear that a lot of Christians are living by mental assent. They're not living by the revelation that transforms our thinking, our emotions, and our will. And it's really important when you're facing things that it requires God's intervention. Um, here's an example before we get back to the, the uh, 144,000. Um, I have a friend who went to the eye doctor. She's in her 50s, 56. They had to give her a lesser prescription, and um, the astigmatism has gone out of one eye. That's a miracle, guys. Astigmatism doesn't just disappear. It's the, the literal shape of your eyeball. So her eyeball was reshaped to where she no longer has an astigmatism that she has had her whole life. So that's crazy, right? And uh, so th those are things that as we believed God, notice the past tense, it begins to manifest. You're not believing for something that always puts it in the future. You have to believe in your place of prayer that you received it. That's where the answer is. And then it will manifest as you maintain your faith. Okay. So with this whole uh, spirit interpreting spirit or, you know, letting God interpret God, we have to interpret the word as people who are in love with God and understanding the impartation that comes from it. Okay. It's a very active exercise. So we're to commune with him spirit to spirit and hear his message in the wind or in the voice. Okay. Which is now on the inside of us where before it was out. Um, and then also another um, wind is Acts 2, 1 through 2. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. This wasn't a gentle breeze. It probably sounded like hurricane or tornadic force winds. And uh, the Holy Spirit came as a wind. So the very thing that Jesus was referring to in his conversation with Nicodemus I just talked about happened on Pentecost. Okay, so neat stuff. All right, now back to the ceiling. So we've got the four angels that are about to destroy the earth, the sea, and the trees. We've got the fifth angel saying, hold up. I need to, uh, you need to hold off until I seal all the servants of God. Now, servant is the word doulon, and it's a male bond servant. It's from the word doulos, which is used only once, and that's in Romans uh, 6.19, where Paul encourages us to use our members as slaves of righteousness. And what I love about that is it's actually a bond slave, and a bond slave is a slave by choice. So whether you sin or not, that's choice. Um, people that think that they have no power against sin or people that feel like they can't, you know, stop what they're doing. That's a myth. That's an illusion. By choice and harnessing the power of the Holy Spirit, you say no to sin. That's how that works. Where people have a problem is they think they're fighting their old nature. The old nature has been crucified. You're not fighting the old nature. You're fighting the old way of thinking that we've been trained in. That's why Romans 12, 2 says that you need to renew your mind so that you can be transformed, right? And so we have to retrain ourselves because we were raised as sinners, and that is done by the word. And so here we have, we're slaves of righteousness. In other words, by choice, we cling to righteousness, okay? Um, it is a slave by choice, completely free, yet chooses a, quote, permanent relation of servitude to another 
his will being altogether consumed in the will of the other. So our will is to be consumed into God's who is righteousness and he has made us God's righteousness. That is a present tense reality and the more we renew our mind, the more we operate in that realm. Okay, so it's really cool. Now, in verses 4 through 8, it says, And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. From Judah, so it goes through Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin. So there's 12,000 per tribe. Now, Dan and Ephraim are missing from the, the list. But I, um, I found this like commentary on it that I thought was interesting. And um, it's at versebyverseministry.org, Bible Answers, Why is the Tribe of Dan Missing in Revelation? It says, first, it's important to note here that there are 13 named tribes in Israel, not 12. Jacob bore 12 sons, but Joseph later adopted two sons in the place of Joseph after moving to Egypt. Thereafter, the sons of Jacob were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Secondly, there are at least 19 lists of Jacob's sons given in the Old Testament, and then he lists all the scriptures. Reviewing this list, we usually find all 13 tribes are included, though sometimes a tribe is left out, usually Levi, because remember, their inheritance was the Lord. For example, in Numbers 1, uh, 2, and 13, and 26, the tribe of Levi is left out. In other cases, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are combined under just the name Joseph. In one case, multiple tribes are missing, and that's in Judges 5. So we see that it's not unusual for scripture to leave names out when listing the tribes of Israel. But he goes on. But when, but then we have the list in Revelation 7. And this list is unique in several ways. First, it is the only list of the tribes of Israel in scripture to exclude Dan. Okay. Secondly, it's the only list to include Joseph in place of only one of his sons instead of both sons. Specifically, Joseph and Manasseh appear in Revelation 7 list, but Ephraim does not. Perhaps the exclusions of Dan and Ephraim are related. Thirdly, the territories originally allotted to the tribes of Ephraim and Dan bordered one another in Canaan. But during the time of Judges, Dan rejected his claim and moved north to occupy a part of the territory of Naphtali. Finally, even though the name of J Joseph is listed in Revelation 7, no territory or tribe of Joseph actually exists. Joseph didn't receive a portion of, this, of the land. His two sons were adopted by Jacob, and they received Joseph's, Joseph's double portion instead. This raises the question, how can there be 12,000 men from Joseph during tribulation when no such tribe of people existed? Okay, so here's something that's important too. Dan rejected his allotted inheritance, like we just read, and he went over into Naphtali's territory. But he was the first tribe to inject idolatry into the land, okay? And the tribe of Ephraim was originally double-blessed, and the ark was actually contained in Ephraim's territory um, in, in, in the town of Shiloh, which was in his inheritance. But Ephraim was also a source of idols and took over Dan's rejected allotment. Okay, so Dan goes to Naphtali, introduces idolatry. Ephraim has its own place, but then they take over what Dan 
uh, rejected. So both were a source of idolatry against the people. Well, here's some more thoughts from the website. But there is a deeper message in their exclusion. The apostasy of Dan and Ephraim represented the low point in Israel's history immediately prior to the Lord raising up a king from Bethlehem to deliver Israel from sin. Sound familiar? This is exactly the pattern that will exist prior to the Lord's return to rule over Israel at the end of tribulation. By excluding these two tribes from the list in Revelation 7, the Lord is pointing our attention back to the circumstances at the end of Judges. The final chapter of Judges, 17 through 21, and the story of Ruth, which follows Judges from a three-part story of the king's arrival to address the nation's idolatry. Parts 1 and 2 of the story are found in Judges 17 through 21 and chronicle the growing apostasy of Israel under the influence of the Danites and Ephraimites. Part 3 of the story is found in Ruth, where the Messiah's arrival in Bethlehem, pictured by the arrival of Naomi's son in Bethlehem, serves as the hope of Israel. These events picture the greater arrival of Christ to rescue Israel from apostasy, or what we would call kinsman-redeemer, right? Therefore, Dan and Ephraim are missing in the list of Revelation 7 to draw our attention to that, to illustrate that Israel is once again guilty of apostasy as it was in Judges under Dan and Ephraim, and once again the Lord will bring Israel, a king from Bethlehem, to rescue Israel from its apostasy, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. By excluding these two tribes, the Lord is emphasizing that the third part of the story is right around the corner. So this points to the fact that the author thinks that these 144,000 are actual Jews. I believe that as well, except for Joseph. Now that's interesting because again, there's no people of Joseph. It was Ephraim and Manasseh. I mean, I guess technically you could say, but he didn't get any allotment. Um, And neither did uh, Levi. But these are bond servants of God. I think they're born again Jews. Um, There might be some Gentile believers in there, perhaps, maybe, represented by the tribe of uh, Joseph. I mean, he he was the second in command of Egypt. Okay, so in Revelation 14, 1 through 5, which we'll study in depth as we get there. But listen to this. I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of a mighty ocean, of mighty ocean waves, or the rolling of loud thunder, and it was like the sound of many harpists playing together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God, and before the four living beings and twenty-four elders. No one could learn this song song except the hundred and forty-four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and the Lamb. They have told no lies, and they are without blame. But I wanted to point out that these are sealed by the Father um, with his name and the Father's name. The word mark is proof of ownership, and name is name, title, character, and reputation, and person. So they follow the, the Lamb wherever he goes. They're owned by him. And they properly reflect his name, his character, his reputation, his authority, his person. They've kept themselves spiritually pure. They've not gone after idols, especially the worship of the Antichrist. So this the scene is telling us in Revelation 7 that the 144,000 are still on the earth. 
in Revelation 14, it appears they may be resurrected or he meets them when he returns, which I'm kind of thinking that might be the case. But either way, they're marked before the Antichrist and his mark. And we'll get into the 666 stuff, but the Jews, tef- I think it's called a teflin, um, was like wearing God's name on your forehead. They would put it, remember the, the, those little boxes? They would put wrap it around their finger and their wrist as well. And it was a sign of being married to God in a covenant. So the marking is a sign of intimacy and worship or ownership in a good way. They're bond servants. And so the reverse is true. If you take the mark of the Antichrist, then you are owned by him and you have received him as a false messiah. Okay. Um, now we're going to finish up with Revelation 7, 9 through 12, because it's about to be dark and you're not going to be able to hear me. You'll be able, I mean, you'll be able to hear me, just not see me, <laughs> which might not be a, a bad thing. Okay. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings, and they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshipped God. They sang, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. So I like the how it starts off with amen and then amen or so be it. And they praise spontaneously and then amen at the end. Okay, verse 14 through 17. I said to him, sir, you're the one who knows. In other words, like who are these people? And he said to me, these are the ones... Oh, I'm sorry. I missed a, um, missed the, the, it's not the 144,000. It's a vast crowd too great to, to count. So he's like, I don't know who these are, you know. And he said, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and made them white. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of life-giving water. And God, excuse me, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So take note the vast amount of believers killed in the Great Tribulation. I've already talked about what the word says is the timing of the rapture. And I went into all the Greek. I went into all the scriptures that would support um, my position that it is after the tribulation because the tribulation is not the Lord's wrath. That's at the very end. The tribulation is the enemy through the Antichrist attacking God's people and trying to take over the world, just like Pharaoh was doing to the Israelites in Egypt. And so the great tribula- tribulation lasts 3.5 years, and there's a lot of believers that get killed during that time. An amount so large that John couldn't count them. So remember, in uh, Revelation 6, 9 through 11, they wanted to know when their blood was going to be avenged. And they were told they should wait a little bit longer until the, quote, full number of martyrs had joined them. So the word in, um, where it says that these were the ones who died in the Great Tribulation, that word is the word came out of. So these saints were in tribulation and then they were taken out. 
by way of martyrdom. Okay, now why is this important? Because when we talked about the timing of the the um, the catching away, one of the things I said is there's a unique verb. There's two verbs for in or out of. Um, one is ek and one is apo. Ek is the one that is used in the reference I just uh, talked about and then also um, in reference to us being caught up. Okay, the idea with ek is that if you have a cup and you put a cup in it, that means that cup within the cup is inside it. So think of the outer cup is tribulation, the inner cup is the people of God, and then taken out. What's interesting is that the authors of the word did not use the word apo. So apo would be where you have the cup, which is tribulation, and then here's the church. It never gets near it. So they don't use that word. They use the word where you're in and then you're taken out. Okay. So anyway, it is about to be dark. I'm going to enjoy my waterfall and my egg chair just a little bit longer. And then it's almost night night time for me. I get up super early and um, I really like it. Do you know, here's a little scientific fact. When you sit outside or in a beautiful surrounding, so it can be a, a beautiful room, outdoors, whatever, in quiet, and you think and you plan and you imagine and you innovate or you just sit there, that your alpha waves of your brain kick in and it silences your inner critic. Isn't that interesting? So, little little scientific tidbit. All right. Hopefully, I will get to do urgent education tomorrow. I am not making any promises it being Dragon Main Week, um, but that's my goal. All right, guys. Have a good night, and I will see you soon.